We're all feminists, right? But we also love hip-hop. So how do we reconcile the fact that we really love this music with the fact that the lyrics are dodgy at best and downright abusive at worst? How do we square up our feminism with the fact that a lot of the people that make hip-hop have done really bad things? Journalist Joan Morgan has spent her whole life examining hip-hop from a black feminist perspective. And in this talk with Triple J's Linda Mariano, Joan offers some useful tools for how to navigate the sometimes fraught path between the music that we love and the politics that we hold. Um, so thank you so much for coming. I'm Linda Mariano, and for a long time I've worked in the music industry as a DJ, as a musician, primarily as a radio host and in TV as well, and a huge hip-hop fan, a huge feminist, and so it's an absolute honour to be speaking to Joan Morgan today, a New York icon, the original hip-hop feminist, the <laughs> author of the recent She Begat This, 20 Years of the Miseducation of Lauren Hill, and of course, When Chicken Heads Come to Roost. Massive welcome to Joan. <laughs> so, so should we start, should we start by you, I guess, kind of explaining this idea of hip-hop and feminism and the bringing together of the terms. Yes, yeah, so um, that's less of an explanation than a story, so indulge me in a story. Uh, I think that one of the things about hip-hop feminism being 20 years old is that people tend to think that it always existed, mm. um, and it, it didn't. So people will ask me about, so do you write about feminist hip-hop artists? And 20 years ago, there was no such thing as a feminist hip-hop artist. Yeah. Um, 20 years ago, quite frankly, it was very hard to get young women, particularly young black women in the United States of the hip-hop generation to identify as feminist at all. I was a new uh, feminist and I became, <laughs> I would say, outed as a feminist quite accidentally. Um, I was a, a young woman living in New York um, with a, who knew that they wanted to be a creative. I thought I was going to be an actor and uh, was figuring that out. What I did have was a, a much older, very Svengali, very famous uh, cultural critic boyfriend who, <laughs> who um, we argued a lot because he actually was, he's a, he's a very brilliant guy and a very brilliant artist, but he wasn't necessarily a great boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And so the, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Central, Tar Central Park jogger rape case. Um, it was a, a case where a group of young black and Latino men were accused of raping a white investment banker in the park, in Central Park, and it polarized the city racially. Um, the media coverage was extremely racist. And so the Village Voice, which used to be one of our premier alternative papers when people still read newspapers, mm -hmm. um, decided that they were doing a special issue called Black and Women's Voices, the Voices Not Heard in the Central Park Jogger case. I wasn't a writer, um, but the boyfriend was, and he was a staff writer at that particular magazine, and he was writing about the racism of the coverage. And I said to him, in the language of um, what my 22, 23, 24 year old just moved out of the South Bronx self said. So I'm gonna use words like gender analysis. That was not my language back in the day. I did not even know what that was. Um, I, you know, I said to him, you're negating the fact that 
she got raped because she was a woman. If I was a black investment banker jogging through the park, my race wouldn't have saved me from being raped, no matter from being raped, no matter who did it. So he calls the editor, his editor, <laughs> says, "I need to change the." We argued till like maybe five in the morning. At, at nine, he calls his editor and he said, um, "I need to change the focus of my story." Mm. And she said, "It's a great." story, but it's not your story. And if this woman can write and write it at all and give it to me in 36 hours, I'll run it. So that's what I did. I didn't own a computer. I wasn't a writer. I had to wait till all the real writers left the magazine. I wrote it. I left it about 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, the mice were running around on like the keyboards. It was, it was really quite that. Um, <laughs> but I wrote it, and then I didn't think anything else about it. Yeah. it until it came out, and the story took front page. And it said, black feminist writer Joan Morgan. <laughs> so, I, you know, I had not worked out my relationship to feminism at all. If you had asked me that, I would have said, no, absolutely um, not. And I think because my introduction to feminism, I went to a very uh, small, white, elite, um, mm. little Ivy school. And it was very, very, feminism was very, very, much centered around white women. This wasn't, this is pre-intersectionality. So I felt as a kid growing up in the South Bronx, a Jamaican immigrant, it just didn't have anything to do with me. But when you write a high profile piece for a high profile paper and you're being called feminist, the thing that people ask you now over and over again is, are you a feminist? And so I had to decide very quickly whether I was or wasn't. I did decide I was a feminist and I also kept writing for the paper. Um, the music editor, then I became the person who's a bit of a lab rat and experiment, like mm -hmm. give Joan anything. So then I got asked to write about the Mike Tyson rape trial. And I was sent down to cover the trial. If I wasn't considered a feminist before, I was certainly considered a feminist <laughs> after I covered the rape trial. Um, and now the articles are starting to garner the attention of the black community who had very strong feelings about me identifying as feminist. Um, I was being asked questions like, do you consider yourself more black or more woman? And I was trying to find where that dividing line could be in my body. So the third piece that made me a hip hop feminist is that I happened to, I didn't have, again, I'm not a staff writer, but I'm trying to learn how to be a journalist. So I just hang out at the Village Voice all the time in the smoking room even though I don't smoke. But that's where like, the most brilliant editorial minds in New York are kind of hanging out. And I'm learning what a profile is and how to pitch and all of these things that I might have learned if I had thought about going to journalism school, but I didn't. Um, and the music editor came over one day and handed me a cassette, because there were cassettes back then, by this woman, new artist named Queen Latifah and asked me to do a music review. And I said, no, because all of the music journalists were men, and I, including the boyfriend, and I, I didn't like any of the writing. I was like, who buys music based on this? And what really is a thrashing, booming riff with a funky bass? Like, what, is, what does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> and so I asked, I pointed, I was like, give it to the guys. Like, this is what they do. And he said, you are the only person in this room who is from the South Bronx, who grew up with hip-hop before it ever, ever um, came on the radio or was even pressed in, in vinyl. Hip-hop is intricately part of culture for me, not an industry. Um, and he said, I want to hear what you have to say. I said, well, if you put it that way, I'll do it. Um, yeah. 
And that started my career as a music journalism, a journalist. And I just kept writing about hip hop because I loved it. And more than I loved it, I was it. Like, I am a product of the South Bronx in the 70s. But again, that question started to come up. As the music progressively got more and more commercial and more and more misogynist, how can you consider yourself a feminist and claim to love hip hop? And again, I was looking for that dividing line in my body that said, this part of me loves hip hop and this part of me is a feminist. And what I had to uh, decide very quickly, um, because I was asked to write a book about this, <laughs> was that um, the two were inextricable. That hip hop for me has never just been about music, it has been about culture and a community that I'm deeply dedicated to. Mm. And that the lyrics that were problematic were coming from a community that I was deeply dedicated to. What I understand now about black feminist theory, as someone who is a black feminist theorist, now all grown up, um, is that a, a tenet of black feminism is that we don't leave anyone behind. If you are trans, we are not leaving you behind. If you are uh, same loving, we are not leaving you behind. If you are a black man, we are not leaving you behind. We either all get through this together or we do not get through. And so for me, hip hop feminism was a way to make a sense of that relationship. For me, hip hop made me a better feminist because I had to learn to exist in very gray area and navigate my, navigate my way through it. Um, I also had to learn that ideology doesn't necessarily dictate pleasure. Mm. Um, I was a hip hop fan driven mostly by aesthetics. Um, I like good production. I like strong beats. I'm known to listen to some things that are really questionable if it makes me kind of go like that. Um, and I, I probably won't listen to it if the lyrics are extremely well-intentioned but the beats aren't funky. Um, that's just true. And so I wrote this book because I wanted to figure out, I wanted more young women to feel comfortable about claiming their feminism, particularly young black women, and not feeling that feminism was asking them to make a choice. I wanted them to feel as if they could bring their whole selves, exist, um, there's a line in the book that says, um, I'm paraphrasing, but basically what I was saying, I wasn't looking for my mother's feminism. Um, my feminism didn't exist easily in the black and white of things. I needed a feminism that could F with the grays. Mm. And that's what hip hop feminism for me was supposed to do, was to make us stand confidently in gray area, use that as our, claim it as our interrogative space, and say, I'm good with being uncomfortable. I'm good with being asked difficult questions. I'm good with making difficult confrontations. But what I'm not being, what I'm not good with is being forced to choose about a culture I help create. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I think like everybody here relates to that obviously. Yeah. Everybody relates to that and how you were saying even 20 years ago and even today there is this fear around and you you say it in your book the F word. Yes. People are scared to say that they're feminists and I know that even the men in my family are weird about it mm -hmm. still and it is about enjoying that grey area and the complications that come with that. Should we talk a little bit about the reaction to within your community when you put that out there? 
<laughs> so all of my homegirls were like, you know, it's a really big opportunity. Are you sure you want to write a book about feminism? Because you know black women are not really feminists like mm -hmm. that. So a number of them, 10 years later, are like, oh my god, you thanked me in the acknowledgement section. Because that's how long it took them to actually read the book. <laughs> they bought the book to support me, but like they weren't necessarily reading the book. Um, and I wrote the book to be a swan song. I thought that I would never have to answer yeah. this question again. That, that clearly is not what happened. <laughs> but it took about, um, I, I have to say, the, the reaction of older black stateswomen, fe yeah. famous feminists, was not positive. Um, I didn't get this like warm opening embrace from my foremothers that I thought I was going to uh -huh. get. It was actually quite um, polarizing and difficult. Um, but what happened was the book started to be championed by young women who were entering the academy or in the academy, and which is so ironic because I deliberately wrote it not to be an academic book. Um, and they would bring it to their professors and sort of say, why aren't we reading this? Um, and then those wonderful young women grew up in to be professors themselves. Mm. And it became part of curriculum in the United States. Um, so it went from this idea of how can that possibly be a thing to, uh, you can get, PH, people get PhDs in hip hop feminism now. Um, and it's part of curriculum internationally, which is something I'm really proud about, less for me than what I wanted to do. I felt like I had no language um, to be able to explain these conflicts. Um, and to work through them. And I feel like myself and a generation of women gave, set the foundation so that Beyonce can stand on the stage and proudly declare herself feminist. If you had asked me if that was possible in 1990, I would have told you that you were out of your mind, mm -hmm. that it would never happen, that an international, global pop star would stand on stage as a black woman and declare herself feminist unapologetically. Yeah. Um, it was quite a moment. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for talking about something that was really hard to at the time and is still somewhat hard to talk about now. Mm -hmm. The amount of people that speak to me as someone that has to champion new music every day and champion artists from all genres and talk about the problems within that. It's difficult. I think we all find it difficult what was the reaction like from, not just from the women, but from the men in the community? That was actually easier. Yeah? Um, I'm a writer that's very sensitive to tone and craft. I think that um, the language that I chose for Chicken Heads, that I was angry when I needed to be angry, mm. but really what, I wrote the book on the premise that I'm not leaving and you're not leaving, so how are we gonna work this out? And so I think because that was the tone, I would do radio shows and all of the call-ins would be men. Um, I think that they were anxious to have some sort of discourse that had that kind of commitment that said, we both love this thing and I'm also not leaving. Um, I'm also a bit of a badass as a journalist, so I, I don't scare easily. Um, yeah. I've never had actually a negative encounter with a male rapper. And one of the things is that I think it taught me is that there's a commercial persona that's sent, that sells, and then there's the person that you actually have to sit and interact with. Um, 
also, you know, you're writing an article, so you are tense, you're in a power position there in a way that mm. I might not be if you were just encountering me in a club. So I'm aware of that. But I actually found that, um, I mean, one, he's, he's now a dear friend and actually uh, my rep. But he wrote, an, he, wrote, he wrote one of the most critical reviews of Chicken Heads um, 20 years ago, mm. Bakari Kutwana, and we laugh about it because one of the things that he says is that, I think Joan Morgan lets black men off too easy. <laughs> um, and there were people like that who just felt like even inviting a conversation yeah. was the equivalent of giving men a pass. And... Um, it never was that. It was saying that we're going to have these conversations and we're going to have them with the understanding that no one gets left behind and with the, with the understanding that your sexism is not pushing me out of a culture that I helped create. So what are we going to do about it? Mm. Mm. It feels like the most important thing with, with your books and, and with the recent one as well was about being informed and being educated so you know what you're listening to. And you know what you are when, when you're growing up. Like you were saying, I don't know if you do it as well, but I grew up with an older brother and being the youngest of everyone in my family. Mm -hmm. And so I used to memorise every word to Doggy Style by Snoop Dogg <laughs> when I was in year three. Do you know how bad that is it's for bad. a kid? I was like eight years old talking about like real hard, <laughs> bad stuff. Um, but it was the same. There, there was a separation of, I actually just, I love the baseline. I love the groove of it. I love the production. I appreciate this. But never once did I grow up questioning my feminism or questioning what was right and what was wrong about it. But being able to listen to it and, and be, and this is something that I encourage anyone that's a hip-hop listener to do or anyone that just consumes culture is just to be aware and informed of where that culture has come from and that it is a reflection of what's going on in that community. I think, too, I think it's fair to point out that hip-hop is racialized a particular way in the United States. Yeah. So, no, we could ask this question of Picasso. We could ask this question of Miles Davis. We can ask this question, really, of so many male prominent artists who've, who've created cultural works that we love, but we target hip-hop in a way where we feel like we have to be very absolute about yeah. it. Um, I'm quite l comfortable loving Miles Davis, and I'm a tremendous Picasso fan, and no one asked me to defend it the way that I would need to defend um, loving hip-hop. And so I think that we have to own that the fact that this misogyny is coming out of the mouths of predominantly black men in the United States gives it a heightened um, attention yep. in a way that other things kind of don't. Not, not even R&B. I mean, it's taking us 15 years to, pull R, to call R. Kelly to the mat. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think as well that... What do you think it is about the misogyny in hip-hop that we talk about that a lot more than the mental illness that comes through hip-hop as well, like the talks of depression and the other problematic, like, really violent culture and other bits as well. But again and again, it's more so, for example, when we get serviced new music, it's always, hey, Linda, can you check it for how misogynistic it is? Mm -hmm. As opposed to, can you check it for how many times this rapper talks about how he wants to kill someone? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think that mental health conversations in hip-hop are fairly new. Yeah. Um, you know, 
when I wrote Chicken Heads, I, uh, Biggie Smalls was one of my favorite rappers. Yeah. And I think the Notorious B.I.G. is full of cues of um, real darkness and depression, right? Yeah. But you have to learn how to interpret that. Like, so if you're talking about smoking weed all day long and drinking all day long, that to some people sounds like party and bullshit, right? To me, that sounds like real uh, depression and angst about living in a society where at that time the life expectancy of black men was 25. So I think it's about reading hip hop holistically mm -hmm. um, as culture, who's producing it, um, whether the artists can articulate them themselves. I think that as a cultural critic, my job is always to uh, flesh out and give the larger picture. And so I think that it's up to people like us, frankly, to say yeah. there are other conversations here. I mean, I always say that hip-hop was a pretty brutal locker room in many ways, but for, as a woman, it was my invitation into the locker room. And how many of us actually get to be there mm. and to confront within the locker room? Mm. Yeah, calling mm. it out as you see it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about the culture today bringing it, as you're saying, that book's now 20 years old. <laughs> it's not a baby anymore. It's not a baby. It's not a baby anymore. What about the relationship between hip hop and fem feminism today? Should we talk about the progression of it? Um, yeah, you know, it's really funny because I feel like it was the baby, and I gave it to the world, mm. and I don't have an I don't have a sense of ownership over it in that way. I feel like there are people who have hip hop feminists. There are other books on hip hop feminism. I feel like people have theorized it. I think feel like people have theorized past it. There's crunk feminism now. Um, there are there's hood feminism. There there are a gazillion feminisms. I'm very happy with that because I think that there isn't one feminist voice. I think that those um, opposite places or opposing, seemingly opposing places that we stand are really good because they force us to confront our own blind spots yeah. and also understanding that we don't all have to agree. You know what I mean? We just have to understand that we need to end up in approximately the same place. And it, it teaches us to... Um, not be tolerant of difference, because I think it's not about being tolerant. I think mm -hmm. it's about actually understanding the difference is advantageous. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was actually something that you wrote in that really spoke to me, which was the fact that your hip-hop feminism is like hip-hop itself, where it is a tapestry of different voices and sampling stories and it crossing over and nothing being exclusive, right. everything being inclusive with the ideal of equality and balance as the end goal. Yeah. And that's something that I do feel it, it's, it's up to us and it's up to all of us to mention it to not just our daughters and our girlfriends, but to our brothers and to our dads and to the sons because it's those guys that make the difference on a daily basis as well. For sure. I feel like it's a little virus that you just kind of <laughs> spread. You know what I mean? Like whenever I talk to guys that make hip hop or that are doing other things, I'm like, mm, the beat's great, but you know about that line, right? <laughs> and what do they say? They, well, who's I talking to? We had this dinner last night and I was speaking to someone about it because my partner works in a lot of hip hop production and I was speaking to him and someone else that does a lot of hip-hop production as well. My partner says 
And this was his stupid get out of jail free card, honestly. And I mention it to him all the time. He's like, English isn't my first language. I just hear it like production. <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing the words, I'm hearing the melodies, I'm hearing the cadence, the rhythm, the flow. This is how it works for me. And I know that's how you listen to music as well, Linda. So you can't, <laughs> you can't change that. And then, you know, you tune into the language of it. Um, and I was like, you're a bullshit artist. <laughs> I turned to someone else. I was like, what about you? You, you work with hip or you work with the biggest people in the game. And their interpretation of, yes, but these guys are trouble. These guys have real problems, but they are talented and they are acknowledged that and they are trying to change. And the tapestry that I work in is that I am also trying to champion as many other genders and opposing or non-opposing perspectives within the music that I make mm -hmm. so that there is more diversity. I think we're, when, we're never going to... Art is, is intrinsically like that. Artists, it's, it's freeform. Mm -hmm. You're allowed to say what your beliefs are. I think what is up to us and what our responsibility is is to make sure that diversity is at the key, making sure that... And that's from everything. That's women on lineups, that's different genders, that's different sexualities and different voices coming through because it is that thing of monkey see, monkey do. Or mm -hmm. if you see it, you can be it. If you don't see any women that are in high positions in business industries or media industries or musicians on a festival lineup, you don't think you can do it or speak about that things. And if all you're seeing and hearing about is a certain lineage of lyrics or melody or production, that's what you're going to keep getting. Yeah. It's, it's like a compound effect. I, you just made me remember that one of the biggest challenges with hip-hop and feminism in the beginning what came from women, um, came, honestly came from women because, yeah. and it was something that, they, that the men would echo, but what they would say was, I know the lyrics are sexist, but they're not talking about me. They're talking about that chick they're over there. They're talking about thoughties. That, th that, thought, you know, that thought over there. And um, one of the things that I think the work of feminism is to do is to show how we're all interconnected. You know, that, um, yes, you may think that he's talking about that chick over there, but in another context, with someone doesn't know you when you're standing in a club and you're being, someone's, you know, pawing you or you're being assaulted, they're not making a distinction that you're that, you're, you're not that chick over there mm. because that's not the way that sexism works. And so a lot of my work in one-on-one -on -one with rappers was trying to make them understand that there's no uh, safe space that you offer women who you think aren't that chick over there, lyrically. Yeah. Like, there's no pass that you can sort of give them and say, we're not subject to the same sort of um, sexism as you think these women over here should be. And the fact that you think that these women over here should be is problematic in and of itself. But I will honestly tell you, these things require conversation because... For these guys, a lot of these guys, they were just saying things without really understanding yeah. what the impact of the language could be. Yeah, that's that was the thing. It was like they were, they hear that in the discourse. So when you hear fifteen or sixteen year old kids that start rapping because that's what they're hearing mainstream, they're saying the same things. Mm -hmm. So I think our job and having the voice of that changing 
and reflecting what culture is like now, which is that it's much more diverse, is that it will in turn create a voice that is more inclusive. Well, I find it really exciting that you're doing this work because I listen to very little contemporary hip hop, but I knew that was going to happen. Hard. It's well, really it's, hard. It's not even like a, honestly, it's, it's not even that issue. Like I was the person at 24 who would look in the club as a music journalist and say that 40 year old music journalist, because when you're 24, 40 seems really old. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be that. Yeah. And I think the success of hip hop journalism, um, gosh, when I started writing, it wasn't even called hip hop journalism. So I'm also like the first generation of hip hop journalists. I used to look and say, the reason that I think I'm good at this or any of us are good at this is because our fingers are right on the pulse. Mm. We're, we're right there, we're part of the culture. We're You're part of the same, the same youth culture. And I wasn't really particularly interested in having a almost 54, which is what I am now, year old feminists tell me about how I should feel about music that I felt was mine. Mm. And I still feel that way. Like, I'm really excited that you are out doing this work. But when people ask me, what am I listening to? What rappers? I, I was like, I, I listen to Bob Marley. I, I really, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I tapped out probably around 2002, 2004. <laughs> but there is progress. My son um, is in film school. At, and somehow has become a rapper along the way. <laughs> Just, I don't know, there's some, some, some kind of poetic weirdness in that, mm. right? But he is a rapper that's raised by a feminist mother. Yeah. His entire approach to what is appropriate lyrical content is completely different, and we don't have to have conversations about it. I also understand that there are times where he'll take a particular kind of license because he's doing a certain kind of storytelling. It's extremely significant to me that one of the first shows that they were able to do where they charged, that they gave the proceeds to Planned Parenthood. I think that's also how you do this work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it trickles down. And I will say, just in terms of work stuff, when I started doing radio, uh, I don't know, when was 10 years ago or something, and we would be in the, the music libraries deciding who was gonna get playlisted and we have those meetings every week. We talk about what music's gotten serviced, who we want to champion. We check every song for lyrics. We check every song for, th for themes and potentially what that artist's story is in terms of where they're going to next. Are there any problems that are going to come? And like, we want to be on the front foot about anything that might come out. But 10 years ago, those conversations were very different to the conversations we have now. Now, in those meetings every week, we check every song for lyrics. Mm. We never used to do that. We, mm. would, we would never check through the lyrics of every s song that was somewhat problematic. Now we do it and we go, okay, how do the women in the room feel about this? How would you feel about this being That's playlisted amazing. on your show? Because we're the ones that are playing it. We play it to a national audience every day. There's millions of people hearing it and that sort of decision-making, that slant did not even exist when I started yeah. 10 years ago. And I would assume that it's very influential to the artist because you want to be played. Yeah. <laughs> you might want to figure out a different way to express that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What do you see as the things now moving forward that you're interested in writing about? Because the book came out 
about Lauren Hill and 20 years of the miseducation of that. Yeah, I, I, I think I wanna not do something with a 20 year theme for the next thing, but <laughs> um, you know, the Lauren Hill book was so interesting because yeah. I am uh, finishing up, I have to say that because my dissertation chair is in Australia and if she's listening, I'm finishing up a dissertation. <laughs> um, and so I hadn't been doing any music writing for uh, almost seven years when they mm -hmm. asked me to do this book. Um, I consider, except for Beyonce's Lemonade, I did break retirement to write about Lemonade. Yeah. Um, and so I <laughs> was supposed to be finishing the dissertation, not calling my chair and saying, I'm gonna take four months off to write a book and then I'm gonna take another five months off to do book tour, like that wasn't supposed to happen. But the reason that I said yes was, besides the fact that my son's college tuition Bill shocked me, <laughs> quite frankly. There were 42,000 really good reasons to say yes to this project. Um, the reason that I said yes was um, I, I am a fan of uh, Lauryn Hill and that particular album. It's, it's iconic. It was amazing to me that it was still so resonant to people 20 mm. years later. But I thought, what a brilliant thing. It dropped in 1998. And we're look, we were looking at 2018, a chance to really look at where we were at the end of the 20th century and where we were almost 20 years into mm -hmm. the 21st, where hip hop was, where black women were, but also where were we socially and politically? I mean, you know, at the end of the 20th century, we still like the Clintons in the, in the US. <laughs> People used to call Bill Clinton the first black president, mm -hmm. largely because we never thought we would have a black president. Um, I also was interested in what our legislation um, did, what welfare to work, the Rockefeller drug laws, the way that these, um, the unfair sentencing principles, like the way that they imprisoned so many people. We talk about the dis disappearance of black men in the United States and related to those laws, but what we don't realize is that the incarceration rate of women increased about 800%. Mm. What did that do to our families? How, and so the, I realized that one of the reasons that this is so resonant is that that same kind of anxiety that she's singing about, about love and the search for love, is a very similar anxiety 20 years later. But the reasons are not solely personal, they're very structural. And I thought, okay, well, this is a, the album gives me a really brilliant way to be able to <laughs> sneak and do that. Um, I also wanted to create a book of music journalism. Um, normally, I get called in as like a marginal, I mean a diversifying voice. We're still, as music critics, extremely, female music critics, extremely marginalized. You know, it's like, call one of the women in so that we can say we had some diversity in. So I decided that I was gonna do a book of all female cultural critics. Um, I have two, diversifying men in, because their voices were absolutely necessary. And it wasn't a representation issue. I felt like this, we're cultural critics. This is, Lauren is not only a story that we're capable of telling, but we also helped create. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the book is called She Begat This. When I signed it in the States, I write, we begat this, because she gave birth, we gave birth to her and she gave birth to us. And so um, it's a bit of a, a love song to her. It's also an honest reflection in things that I think we did wrong. She was a 23-year-old girl, and we put the burden of saving hip-hop 
on her shoulders. Um, we were pretty unkind when we figured out that she couldn't do that. And um, a little impatient. And um, she's also a little impatient with us. And so I wanted a chance to talk about a complicated relationship in a, in a nuanced sort of way. Yeah, huge subject for Lauren. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the, the reaction to that was what you expected when you put that book out? Uh, I don't... I, mm, what was I expecting the reaction to be? I kind of don't write things thinking about the reaction. Yeah. I, I sort of wait... So I think about what the reaction would be, I'll censor the way that I write, probably. Yeah. And so I think very much about who I'm writing for and who I'm writing to. But what you think about it, I, I don't allow myself to indulge while I'm creating it. I think the reaction to it, um, from what I can see, what was surprising, I think people just miss her. And I think that um, even at her 20th anniversary, she did no press around the 20th anniversary. There was no engagement with this audience that had stood by her for so long. So I think the book kind of became the, the Lauren surrogate in, in some ways, yeah. um, because it gave, uh, it gave venues and places and uh, people an opportunity to engage this album that they, they really loved. Did she reach out at all when you when you no, that I didn't um, expect her to. She's quite reclusive. I, I, do, I do know that she's read it. And um, she actually, I don't, know, I don't know that she's read it. I know that she's gotten it in her hand. I know that she knows that it exists. Um, I woke up on Instagram one morning and my friend had posted my book with a uh, signature on the author page. And I was like, that's not my signature. Who signed my author? It was Lauren. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> that's the only like, thing I was like, OK, that's OK. That's actually OK. She's she gone. She's there. gotten it. Um, but I don't, I don't expect that she'll respond to it. I hope that she will find it um, loving, yeah. but honest. Um, and I really, one of the things that I told the publisher was that the one thing that I will tell you that I will not do is I won't interview her for this book because I don't want the book to be about Lauryn Hill. I want the book to be about the album and this time period. Mm -hmm. um, also, there's that thing about having to produce a book in four months and you know how celebrities are and it's gonna take me three and a half months to even sit down and interview her and then yeah. I'll have to write a book in two weeks. Like, it just wouldn't be good. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, we're going to do some questions. So I think if you've got questions, you can head to either side of the microphones. There's like one that says number one there, one that says two there. So if you've got questions, please start launching over. Um, but what are you working on now? Are you working on... The size of the dissertation? Yeah. <laughs> Um, Chicken Heads has been optioned for films, so after yes, I finished Yes, that's the right. I was like, there's something that yeah. you're doing that's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, after I finished the dissertation, I am finishing. I have to defend in June. Yes. Jennifer, are you listening? I'm defending in June. Um, I, I have to write the screenplay for the book, so that's yeah. the next major writing project. Wow. Will that be, yeah. God, screenplay? Yeah. But, you know, it's funny. I, I always wanted to write screenplays, yeah. even before I was published as a journalist, I'm remembering that what I wanted to do was act and write screenplays. So it feels like it's coming full circle again. Right. Yeah. Um, should we get into some questions? Have we got, uh, are we starting over here? Yes. Looks like it. 
Um, thank you so much for the talk. Um, you mentioned that you were a proud fan of Miles Davis and Picasso, and you're not ashamed to talk about it. But when I listened to and have watched the R. Kelly documentary, I found it pretty confronting to, to realize that I'm having this cognitive dissonance with the music I love, the, the music that I grew up with and loved listening to. And also now with the Michael Jackson documentary coming out, it's just <laughs> compounded in my head and I don't know what to think about it. What goes through your mind when you listen to Miles Davis and when you appreciate the work of Picasso and how do you reconcile with your cognitive dissonance with that? Um, well, you asked, thank you, it's a, it's a great question. First of all, some of this work was done for me by um, Pearl Cleek, who's an amazing writer and also a black feminist. She has a book called Mad at Miles, which is all about the fact that she was a huge Miles Davis fan and then found out he used to beat the crap out of Cicely Tyson and how she tries to make some sort of reconciliation with that. And I think one of the things that Pearl did for me is to understand I am a feminist and I am deeply human and I'm filled with, I'm actually the dissertation is that I'm trying to articulate a politics of pleasure in black feminist theory because I think that we don't take enough into account how pleasure and desire is very much part of our makeup. Aesthetics is part of our makeup. And so my job as a feminist is to not say, I'm, I'm not an R. Kelly fan by any stretch of the imagination, but to not say this particular, Picasso did this, and because he did this, I cannot, no one can accuse him of being sexist, misogynist, a rapist. We know that that is not true. I think that's the work, is to say complicated artists are often as good as they are because they are complicated, and some of them very, very dark in certain areas of their life. We do not have to give celebrities an absolute love, and we also don't have to put the pressure on ourselves to be absolute about our desires. I have found Michael Jackson, quite frankly, troubling for a good long while. I'm not gonna give up the relationship. It doesn't change the fact that the first uh, record I ever bought was, a 40, was ABC by the Jackson Five. I hold that love um, very dear. I hold those memories of thinking, hoping that Michael Jackson's limousine would pull up one day in my, you know, and see me on the stoop in the South Bronx. <laughs> this is what five-year-olds think about. <laughs> and sweep me away very dear because they are part of, um, they're part of the construction of my childhood. I don't think that holding any artist accountable means that I have to now clean that slate and pretend that those relationships didn't exist. Think about it in a relationship with a partner that you've had that has been complicated and you know that it should finally end. I think you do yourself a disservice and actually uh, stall your healing process when you don't acknowledge the good things that existed you also put yourself in great danger if you refuse to acknowledge the things that are toxic. Mm. Uh, is that helpful? Okay, yeah, thank you. I think so, okay. yeah. Well, it's exactly as you were saying, is that you wanted to write a, a book and your kind of whole approach to it is fucking with the greys. Yeah. Like, you can't just rule something out as being black and white. I find that way anyway. 
there'll be some days where I can't listen to certain artists because I'm feeling really fired up and I've just read a study and I'm looking at statistics and I feel really shit about the state of women in the world and then other days I'm like, fuck, I just want to listen to Mo Bamba for a second. Can I just say I'm like so relieved that you curse because I didn't know how that goes. Like, oh, goes yeah, we're, Astra we're Australian, I didn't know, And I, I'm a New Yorker and I have Sarah out, so I have really been trying to be like, don't, oh, don't say shit, we've don't got, say You've got okay. 13 minutes. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> Get it, get it happening. Um, yes, a question. Um, so Joan and I are friends. We're both from the Bronx, but it's something we've never talked about. Um, we both love Cardi B, and I think um, there's something about Bronx girls. We love other Bronx girls fiercely, whether it's Jennifer Lopez or Kerry Washington, <laughs> <laughs> Roxanne Shante. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to hear from you about um, Cardi B and how you think she kind of troubles the waters of hip-hop feminism being a previous sex worker and dancer. Um, and then the other question I have, which I just thought about when you were talking, is like I feel like hip-hop and feminism, we always focus on um, the hip-hop part of it and look at misogyny and toxic masculinity and sexism. But, you know, I would love to hear you talk more about like feminism is steeped in this like institution of whiteness that is also so challenging to us as black women um, and how that um, challenges and empower and how, how you use that, um, those the racism of feminism um, as it is to kind of like build this whole um, theory and movement around hip hop feminism to work for you. Okay, so Cardi and uh, racist feminism, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I actually, to me, Cardi, for me, yeah. because I am a Bronx girl and it's so deeply invested in the boogie and hip hop, um, because I am a feminist who didn't come through academia, who came through hip hop, my feminism has always been gritty. So to me, Cardi B is like my child. <laughs> no, really, like I am probably more a fan of her feminist proclamations on her Instagram feed than I am even of her music. I mean, I cheer for her, I ride for her because it's kind of what Bronx girls do. We're like, the Bronx is a tribe, like you guys need to, to understand that. We're fiercely tribal and we ride really hard for each other, whether it's Cardi B or our new Congress uh, woman who is just shaking stuff up, Bronx style, uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This is what we do. But one of the things that Cardi, one of my favorite posts from Cardi was a very, very, very scathing post about elder black feminists who were probably academics who were telling her that she couldn't be feminist. Um, I think she called them dusty bitches, like yeah. that might have been it. <laughs> and I remember that because that's exactly what I got um, because I was declaring a love for hip hop and also feminist. There's this sort of territoriality about what true feminism looks like. And I think that you know, she brings a straight up hood feminism and she's very clear. She says, having a degree is not what makes you a feminist. And I think that her experience as, as um, a former stripper and entertainer and someone who is still so deeply wedded to the street and the aesthetics of the street mm -hmm. and advocates for the street makes her more feminist than probably all of them put together. So I think that Cardi is progress, not regression. I know that people read her that way, but it's usually through the lens of a, of a respectability politic that make people say that. Um, and I think that when a Cardi B 
a 13-year-old is looking at her feed and says, Cardi B says I'm feminist, that means I could probably be feminist too, that that's a very good thing. Yeah. Um, in terms of the racism um, of and what I what I, I think that the racism actually of white feminism is a kind of selective ignorance in many ways. Um, I don't think that it's it's active in the sense that we're deliberately trying to be racist. I think that we are. It, it shows up more in like we only want to see what we want to see because seeing other things is uncomfortable. I will say that the way that I worked that out for myself is that I never rooted my feminism in white academia. So I didn't care. Like, I, that for me, um, Bell Hooks was probably the first feminist that I read that I felt had anything to do with me. Mm -hmm. um, but even that, uh, Patricia Hill Collins is later. This is also why they weren't particularly in love with me when I wrote the book. Angela Davis, Bell Hooks. Um, those sort of stellar black feminists were really good, but they weren't necessarily me. Like, I'm a girl like Cardi from the hood. And so reading a book that I had to even get via academia didn't feel like it was gonna be rooted enough for me to call myself feminism, feminist. So I turned to my mothers. I turned to the black women that raised me. Um, I turned, and then once I did that, it became very easy to turn to what I knew about black women historically. Um, I'm a Caribbean woman, and so the history of feminism to me does not start in the 60s with white women. It does not even start with the suffrage movement in the United States. I look to Haiti and the Haitian Revolution and the black women that were standing there at the Haitian Revolution. I think that when black women say to themselves, they give themselves the easy out of feminism is white women's shit, yeah. that you negate Sojourner Turner. Yes. You negate... Uh, Anna Julia Cooper, you negate all of those black women who came before you who were feminists, who actually informed the suffrage movement that you're talking about. So I think that um, when black women opt out of feminism in that way, that they are making a very easy opt. And it's our job to say to them, you need to know your history, because if you knew your history, you would have no choice but to show up and be feminist. Yes, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, we've got one over here. Go ahead. Hello. Um, my question is kind of related to that as well. Just wondering how do you unpack um, what you were saying, music and hip hop as culture as opposed to the industry today, um, including, uh, I guess, uh, like supposedly the, the feuds between Nicki Minaj and Cardi B and then, um, you know, women's sexuality uh, today. So I guess how do you unpack that? Okay, so I just want to make sure to, I understand yeah. your question. How do I unpack uh, the kind of feuding that exists between like a Cardi and a Nicki, um, depictions of sexuality in the music and... Yeah, I guess as products of, of hip hop within the industry as opposed to what actually hip hop is as, as culture that, that you were talking about before. I mean, you know what? Cardi and Nicki beefing is the culture. Yeah. It is the culture. I mean, they are beefing at Fashion Week in very expensive clothing, which is not where the culture started. <laughs> but I was really, I mean, honestly, I don't under, I, I feel like it's really sexist or maybe a misunderstanding of like what hip hop is when people overreact to women beefing in the culture. 
it's part of actually the musical art form. Like yeah. we have, we have disc records, we have, you know, one record completely tries to take somebody out. There's a whole series of like Shanta, Roxanne Shante disc records like that go back to the 80s where people argue. And I mean, part of the reason that musical beef was so great was that it didn't have to become physical beef. And so I think that there was an expectation that these two who have a very troubled relationship should behave a certain way because Anna Wintour was in the building. <laughs> it's hip hop. Hip hop doesn't care if Anna Winter is in the building. <laughs> hip hop knows that Anna Winter wants hip hop in the building because of what we bring to the table. And if that means if an occasional shoe flies, an occasional shoe flies. <laughs> Those kind of things I don't really take on. Um, I think that in terms of sexuality, um, part of the, the work I'm doing now in pleasure politics mm. is in the United States, when we talk about black uh, women's cultural products and black women's depictions of sexuality, it is very much through the logics of racism and the history of slavery. And so we always read first for hyper-visibility, hypersexual, and I'm encouraging us to read the pleasure engagements of black women as pleasure. I enjoy my body. I enjoy the musicality in my body. I enjoy my sexuality. What happens when we look, about, look at the way black women are actually engaging pleasure as opposed to the way we believe the black body has to be a canvas being read for oppression? So I see the performances of a Beyonce and a Nicki Minaj. I read those bodies very differently because I'm not solely reading for trauma. And reading for pleasure is actually not in conflict with my feminist principles in mm. that way. I also am not particularly concerned, care, think about the white gaze, which is honestly the reason that those bodies are, wet, are read that way. I'm more concerned about how do I dance when I think white people are not looking? And how do I dance that way all the time? Hi, um, I'm a, a high school teacher in New Zealand for an all-girls school um, and teach dance, mm -hmm. mainly hip-hop and now also reggaeton. And my all-time favorite genre, <laughs> um, understand the lyrics and mainly focus on the 90s and early 2000s because mm -hmm. that's my generation and where I came from. Um, it's problematic at times with, with young women and obviously the perceptions out there. There's still other teachers within um, the curriculum and within the education system that frown upon that and that of frown course. upon that we do this as one of our units, that our school chooses to do this. We obviously have backlash from some of the parents. Um, <laughs> so I guess my main question is a lot of what you've said and things I've read have helped answer that. But to justify these choices and to enhance their learning and open their minds to it without giving it a stigma. How do I, yeah, I guess how do I justify that to A, the board, the I other teachers? I have the answer, just give them Joan's chicken heads book. <laughs> <laughs> just give them all the, just like slap the book in their face and go, this is how you can enjoy it and live in the gray, but you go, Joan. <laughs> we get a class seat for every class. <laughs> uh, I actually find linking it to text very useful 
um, because there is this sort of feeling that if something has been published and it's been institutionalized in a particular way, it's like, oh, so you may want to call that a hip hop feminist dance class because the language sounds a little, you know, oh, that's a thing. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I think that it's about strategy, about how we make these spaces. And so what we call things and what we name things, I mean, there, there is this interesting dance, right, about how much, um, I can sound very anti-academia, even as someone who is clearly um, now uh, legitimately can be called an academic, much to my dismay. But I think that, um, I think that for me, part of the reason that I did this was understanding the strategy about how to move through those spaces. And so I actually sometimes don't care what you call it if I can still do the work. I feel that way about feminism. I feel like I actually don't care if women call themselves feminists or not. You can tell me you're not feminist all day, but if we're showing up and doing the same work, I'm good. We don't even have to have a conversation about what you want to call yourself. So I think that that's it. I think it's about um, finding the sort of broader terms that might make people feel safer. Um, you know, I think that utilizing and operationalizing feminism in that way um, finding and articulating what's actually feminist in terms of your classes and writing that into the uh, course description might be helpful in the justification. Yeah, yeah. using Thanks. the tact. Yeah. Um, I think our time, look at the time, the time is up. <laughs> We've got a clock that just says, shut up. <laughs> um, so thanks so much for coming and have a Thank enjoy the rest of your day.